Hello, everybody, and welcome to Anthropologically Speaking. I'm Katie. I'm Iz. And as usual, I'm Isabel. And today we're going to be talking to you about paleopathology. So to give a quick introduction, paleopathology is the study of human and skeletal remains looking for evidence of disease, pathologies, or abnormal lesions in order in order to understand health of individuals and populations. A lesion on bone can be indicative of a disease that a person had, a traumatic event, or some sort of human experience that is expressed permanently on the individual's skeleton. We study this in order to get a more holistic perspective on how an individual lived to make predictions about larger societal patterns. For example, you could access if a person had a broken leg, as their skeleton would likely show evidence indicative of a broken bone, and from there you could attempt to access the experience of that person with the debilitation. Or, on the other end, you could see evidence of a person who experienced having a disease such as syphilis or leprosy, and compare that to an individual's burial context to access how that person may have been marginalized or not within their community. However, today we're just going to specifically talk about trauma because, well, Katie loves trauma (laughs) and could chat about it for hours. So go on and take it away, Katie. (laughs) Absolutely. So um, as Isabel mentioned, um, there are lots of things in paleopathology and there are biological anthropologists and even people in other fields who devote their lives to paleopathology and its research. So because it's such a big field, we're going to zoom in today on trauma. So trauma is um, a really interesting phenomenon that oftentimes uh, manifests itself in bone. So when you think trauma, um, there are different types of trauma, of course, right? There's psychological trauma, there's physical trauma, and of course the type of trauma that would manifest itself in bone is physical trauma. So when we talk about trauma, um, we're talking about a few different things. We're, we're mostly talking about um, a force that causes an injury. So there are different types of trauma, like there's projectile trauma, like if I shot somebody with a gun, um, <laughs> that would be projectile trauma. <laughs> and, uh, there's blunt force trauma. Um, I'm going to use Isabel's example for her all these. So if I came at Isabel with a bat, that would be blunt force trauma. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> if I came at Isabel with an axe... That would be sharp force trauma. I literally told you right before this, I didn't want to be chopped, Katie. (laughs) (laughs) Respect that, please. (laughs) The fun thing about axes, though, is that they're heavy, so they can cause blunt force trauma, too. So we'll talk about that later. But um, there's also, like, an explosion, like shrapnel can cause trauma. So there are different ways that can cause trauma. Or something like falling off the swing set as a kid and breaking your arm that's also considered trauma is this personal experience katie (laughs) (laughs) no i actually in terms of my own personal skeletal trauma i've only ever broken a toe so i've been very lucky touch wood (laughs) how did you break your toe i oh this is a fun story okay so um it was canada day and like I, i was in the house i wasn't wearing shoes or socks and um the phone rang and I think I was either, like, the only person home or, like, the only person who could get the phone. So I was, like, running for the phone. And I was in my parents' bedroom, like, trying to get the phone. And their bed has, like, um, it's, like, a raw iron bed. And it's got, like, it's four posters. So one of the posters is, like, a pole. And I hit my foot into the pole, and my pinky toe wrapped around the pole, and the rest of my foot went the other way. Oh, no. 
So that was the story of me breaking my toe. I thought it was going to be some like cool event, but you were just running after the phone. Yeah, <laughs> no, I have I have the weirdest instances of trauma. But luckily for me, skeletally, not many many of them are manifested. For example, the time I accidentally I was reading and my toenail ripped off. What? How do you? How, <laughs> how do those effects connect at all? This seems like very two different, yeah. two different reading, stories. Like, how do you read? With I'll your leave feet that as or? a mystery. <laughs> um, tweet us if you no, I'm yeah. you don't even have Twitter. Um, but um, yeah, so not all trauma can be manifested skeletally. Like a lot of it is just soft tissue trauma, and of course, when we dig up remains archaeologically, unless they're mummified. We're not going to see all this soft tissue trauma. We're just going to see what was in their bones and what affected their bones during life. So I just want to point out there's three different um, t- timing for trauma mm-hmm. when you're looking at skeletal remains. So there's anti-mortem, which is anything that has occurred before death and is likely showed signs of healing. Um, there's perimortem, which happened at or around the time of death. Second, in forensic cases, it can help you to figure out how an individual died. You can't determine whether it was, like, immediately before or immediately after. You can't really discern that from bone. But um, And then post-mortem, which is anything that happened after death. So it's, like, if you're excavating a skeleton and you accidentally break the bone, that would be post-mortem trauma. Mm-hmm. Carry on, sorry. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> That's a really important point to make. And... Um, like you said like especially in forensic cases that can be really relevant and even in archaeological cases like we have something in archaeology called taphonomy um and that would be things like uh, root etching so if a root grows around the bone and kind of imprints itself in the bone that would be a form of taphonomy or if a it's like environmental factors that affect like the bones so or if a if a rat came and like gnawed and left its tooth prints on the bone um, we that's all post-mortem damage and it's really important that we differentiate that kind of damage from something that would have happened in life because obviously the rat that came and chewed this person 50 years after they died did not have an impact on their life and how they lived and their lived experiences so it's really important that we're able to differentiate that kind of thing but that being said um, I'll go through some types of trauma so I mentioned blunt force trauma and that's impact by a flat or round surface so um, it's affected by the size of the instrument its shape its weight and it usually has like a wide focus so it's not like a narrow focused item it's usually pretty broad um and blunt force trauma doesn't actually have to be through contact with an instrument it can also be through a fall so if i fell and i hit my head that would be a form of blunt force trauma caused by the ground for example so you've got a lot of forces at play when you've got blunt force trauma you've got compression You've got bending, you've got shearing, and the way I like to think of shearing is if you have a deck of cards and you run your hand against the top and you kind of diagonalize the cards, that's like a shear force. Um, And there's also crushing that can happen in blunt force. A lot of the times when you get blunt force trauma, you'll get a lot of little pieces. So that's called comminution, and I'll talk about different types of fractures later. But uh, yeah, that's called comminution. So one of the things that people do, um, this is effect. Uh, especially relevant in forensic anthropology, but can also be contextually relevant. For example, if the person was a soldier and you dig them up. So we have something called the hat brim line. So basically, if you wear a hat 
there's kind of a line where your hat would sit. And that's called the hat brim line. And if the trauma is above the hat brim line, likely the trauma was sustained as a result of a blow. So like an interpersonal conflict. But if it's at the hat brim line, it's very likely caused by a fall because that's where you would hit your head if you fell. So that's a really interesting thing as well. And the angle that you hit somebody with would also change the fracture shape. So it's very variant what kind of things you'd see with blunt force trauma. So um, sometimes with blunt force trauma, you'll see something called radiating and concentric fractures. They're kind of like little spider webs that come out from the point of impact. Um, Force will always take the path of least resistance. And concentric fractures, which are like a circular fracture around the point of impact, are when you've got a really high energy blow. So that's kind of neat. And the cool thing about radiating fractures, especially ones that run into each other, are that you can actually kind of detect which one happened first because lines will never cross each other. So you can kind of have a bit of a detective game and figure out which one happened first based on, based on which line stops where. And it's really interesting. And that's a technique used in forensics as well. So another type of trauma is projectile trauma. And this is things like um, bullets or arrows or spears. Um, and when we're thinking about this, we can also think of the types of tools that they would have used in antiquity. Um, like spears, not many people are walking around with a spear today, <laughs> unless you're like spear fishing. Oh, you don't? No. <laughs> oh, I didn't get the right memo. Now. I didn't bring yeah. my spear today. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, that might have been something that was a lot more common in, say, like a war setting in the past. So when we think archaeologically, we think maybe we think about what could have caused something based on the time and the context. So uh, when we look at projectile trauma, there can be, especially in the case of a gunshot or a buckshot, entry and exit wounds. And we can actually tell these apart based on the type of beveling they have, it's called. So an entry wound will have, uh, an entry wound will have sharp edges and it'll be kind of angled as a cone inwards um, from the inside and an exit wound will be beveled externally, and it will be larger than an entry wound. And you can really think about that logically, just if something enters something. It's kind of like that puzzle where it's like, oh, if the glass is inside the house, was the house broken into or broken out of? And it's broken into if the glass is inside the house, because direction of the glass. Um, it's kind of like that. So, um, of course, guns are a form of projectile trauma. And um, you can, based on the lesion or the wound found, you can possibly tell things like caliber, which is useful in forensic cases. Um, and there are also um, sharp force trauma. So sharp force trauma is a really interesting one. It's kind of what you'd think of, um, or sorry, puncture trauma. Um, puncture trauma is exactly what you'd think it is. When you puncture something, it's um, like it causes a hole. It's like if you punctured a piece of paper, it's like that. So an example of puncture trauma is if I came at Isabel with okay. a screwdriver. <laughs> oh, that would be Thanks for that puncture. picture, Katie. <laughs> You're welcome. So 
Um, punctures are a type of sharp force trauma. Um, another type of sharp force trauma is um, cut marks and also chop marks. So cut marks, we'd, uh, punctures we'd call stabs, cut marks we'd call incisions, and chop marks we'd call clefts. So um, we can look at a wound and try and decide maybe what the dimensions of the blade were. So with a puncture, it's going to be pretty vertical because if you come at somebody with the screwdriver... I would like to say that she's <laughs> making these motions in the studio like she's stabbing somebody. It's morbid. I'm a method actor. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you have a screwdriver, though, you're going to get a very vertical motion just because of the nature of puncturing. Um... So with a puncture or a stab, you frequently get the ribs involved in terms of bones that you'd find, um, because I guess that's a really common place that people get stabbed. stabbed. <laughs> um, I was trying to think of a way to say that delicately, yeah. <laughs> but there, there is no, no. way. Um, so cut marks are like a long, sharp edge, and the wounds are going to be longer than they are wide. So cut mark is going to be more like a knife. So um, a blade can have a V-shaped cross section um, in terms of the cut itself. And the width and the shape of the cut mark reflect the blade type, the size, the force. So you can actually go in and analyze what might have caused it, what kind of force might have caused it, what kind of angle did the person come at, the other person with, if it's interpersonal trauma. Um, sharp force trauma can heal pretty well, um, which is pretty neat. And uh, we're coming up to Isabel's favorite, chop marks. <laughs> <laughs> and chop marks are what I think are one of the most interesting because it's a combination of sharp and blunt force trauma. It's sharp. For example, if I had an axe, it's sharp. It will cut. But it's also heavy and will cause crushing. Basically, it's the worst if you are the victim of a chopper. <laughs> you don't want to be chopped. No. <laughs> Katie, was that a threat? <laughs> See me later. Yeah. <laughs> See you um, in the parking lot. But, but with a chop mark, you're going to get flaking, crushing, shattering, and you're also going to get those fracture lines, those spider webby things that we talked about. Um, sometimes even if somebody gets, uh, comes into contact, especially with sharp force trauma, they're going to get debris introduced into the wound, which is interesting. And again, very relevant to forensic cases, because if somebody has dirt or debris from a certain site introduced into a wound and then they're moved, then you might be able to find out maybe at least where the weapon had been or where the person was. So that's a really interesting thing and one of the cool things is different blades have different instruments and characteristics so if you got like a serrated blade like kind of like if you had like your kitchen knife will likely be serrated it's kind of that like a uh, wavy scalloped shape and it's going to leave um parallel lines in bone if you cut so, so gruesome. Yeah, Isabel's over here like throwing up, <laughs> flinching in the corner. <laughs> no, one thing I do find interesting about sharp force trauma, though, is that there's kind of this overlap between um, perimortem and postmortem. Because mm -hmm. I know we talked about a little bit about dismemberment, <laughs> but um, let's talk about that. Yeah, well, <laughs> there's just all, often um, like in a forensic context, context if there's postmortem alterations. So. Um, so if someone is murdered, and it could be from um, sharp, sharp force trauma, like stabbing, but then afterwards, 
um, is dismembered. <laughs> I, don't, I was trying to. <laughs> There's no way to say this. No way to say it. Yeah. So it's this. They also are like sawed up yeah <laughs> so there's definitely like that overlap yeah mm-hmm. like being sawed up <laughs> there's something called like kerf marks yeah um which is it's kind of like if anyone's ever sawed a piece of wood in half it's like the amount of force that you saw it apart with can create like um i don't know what to call it like a jagged edge on the bottom yeah that's it, like, the breakaway spur off. yeah so that can kind of um, tell forensic investigators like how the directionality, the directionality, how much force is being used to saw someone's arm off, and sometimes you morbid. get false starts too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, which sometimes you get in murder cases from hesitation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's being creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really leaning into it. The now. faces you're making I know, right now. I took your eyebrows out. Please <laughs> <laughs> don't come over. <laughs> So yeah, there's curve marks, um, and different different saws, for example, have different characteristics. Like if it's a hand saw, it's going to look a lot different than if it is a power saw. Yay. So um, there are four categories, especially in crime, of mutilation. So there's defensive <laughs> mutilation, <laughs> which is the most common. So when you hear um, uh, about people... For example, trying to conceal a body, like, oh, no, I just murdered a person. That's defensive mutilation. Like, oh, I have to chop this person up and send them into the river. Kind of because... like oxymoron. <laughs> defensive mutilation. It's like, ooh, they were coming at me, so I had to cut all their arms off. Like, <laughs> You can, yeah. There's, um, like, offensive, yeah. So there's also, like, defensive wounds. So if I yeah. put my hands mm-hmm. up and somebody was coming at me with a knife and they stabbed me in the hand... That would be a defensive wound. There's also something called perifractures. Which yes, perifractures. Distal ulna. Distal ulna. So the distal ulna is um, the part of your forearm that's closer to your wrist. It's and on if the I, yeah, if I raised my arm, if I attacked Katie back <laughs> <laughs> because this is now self-defense, then it's kind of the natural instinct. You she put your raise arms her up. arm, and then yeah. if I like hit the arm and it fractured, that would be indicative of a peri fracture, and forensic investigators would be like, "Oh, she was trying to defend herself, mm-hmm. likely." So another type of mutilation is offensive mutilation, which is just an aggressive action towards someone. There's <laughs> aggressive mutilation, which is dismemberment as a way to kill. And there's necromantic mutilation, which is a collection of parts, of course, for trophies. I feel like this would be Katie. If it oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting morbid over here, girl. I, oh my, I have been accused of many things in my life. I've never been one of them. No, I, I, I promise I am completely not a serial killer. Promise. Promise. Um, but, yeah. So, those are some types of... Um, mutilation but we're going to move on to something that a lot of people have a lot of experience with and that's fracture so um types of fracture um first maybe i'll just say what a fracture is so a fracture is a break in the continuity of bone very (laughs) plain and simple (laughs) um so if you break your bone you've you fractured it 
So there are different types of fracture. Now there's um, some types that are more common in adults than children, or more common in children than adults. For example, there's a green stick fracture. So green stick fracture is an incomplete fracture. So it doesn't go all the way through the bone. It doesn't completely break the continuity. And this is really common in children because their bones are more elastic. They've got more of that collagen and they can also heal um, a lot better. So if somebody has a green stick fracture in a limb in their childhood, you might not see that at all in an adult skeleton. Consequently, if I currently, as an adult, broke my arm, you'd probably see it because there's something called remodeling, which is how the bone repairs itself. And you can actually see what's called like a bony callus around a fracture point, a healed fracture. And it's actually able to, you can tell this person had a fracture. Now, if it's completely healed, all you know is that they had it some time ago within enough time to have healed. But you can't say like, oh, this was like 20 years ago. You can't say that. So that's one limitation to looking at fractures. But there are other different types of fractures too. One type of fracture or the two types of um, fracture that any type of fracture can be is you can have a uh, an open fracture or a closed fracture. So an open one is also often called a compound fracture, and that's what you get when the bone breaks the skin. Uh, it's a more serious type of fracture than what you'd call a simpler closed fracture, which is when the bone stays where it should. <laughs> so um, different types of fracture, you've got a transverse fracture, which is when you've got a complete, just straight across line across the bone. There's also an oblique fracture, which is like a diagonal cut across the bone. There's comminuted, which you might get comminuted, for example, in automobile accidents. It's indicative of high, high force. And it's when your bone crushes into a bunch of different pieces. So, yeah, comminuted fractures can be very serious. But um, in terms of bone healing, once your bone has, in, in a person that's alive, at the time that their bone is broken, so this is part of the way that we can also determine antemortem, perimortem, postmortem, they're going to have a healing response. It's going to start almost immediately. And you're going to start have a blood clot form called a hematoma, and that's going to over time turn into a, blo a bloody callus, <laughs> a bony callus. <laughs> um, it's going to turn into a bony callus. And it's, um, it's going to eventually repair itself. But depending on if the person, for example, had access to medical care. For example, if I broke my arm right now, I'm lucky enough to live in Canada where I have coverage. I can go to the doctor. I can have my arm set um, and it'll heal nicely. But a lot of people, uh, both in the past and even in the current world, don't have access to that kind of care. And their bone not, might not heal properly. For example, if I broke, say, um, a leg bone, one of my leg bones, and it didn't heal properly, uh, like the fibula and the tibula, which are the bones from below your knee. Uh, did I say fibula and tibula? You did. <laughs> oh my god. The fibula and the tibia, which are the bones from below your ankle to below your ankle. Oh my god. The, I cannot word today. Below your uh, knee. Yes, thank you. Below <laughs> your knee to your ankle. They've got a little bit more of a fail-safe because they're bound together by tissue. Um, but if I broke, say, a femur and it didn't heal properly, it might actually shorten my leg, um, which could alter my gait, how I walk. So that kind of thing has a lot of implications for how people 
um, how they lived in the past. Because if somebody was, say, in a farming community and they have a fracture, a healed fracture that would have altered how they walked, they might have not have been able to participate in the kind of activities that he, he or she um, or they may have wanted to participate in, may have been required, obligated to participate in. And that's something really interesting. We can start looking at this trauma and we can start making um, social interpretations from it, which is really, um, which is really interesting. It, it starts to blend medicine, social sciences, and it's a really interdisciplinary way of thought. But yeah, we can start to make those social interpretations about people in the past. And it's uh, it's really, really neat. Yeah, for sure. I love trauma. Oh <laughs> I, should not, I should not say it like that. <laughs> I need to rephrase. I enjoy learning about trauma because it allows you to access different experiences of people in the past. And every case is unique. Yeah. Different people... Like, people have pathologies that are compounded. They might not just have like oh they broke their arm once they might have tuberculosis and they broke their arm like what do these have as consequence like what kind of social interpretations can we draw so i find that really interesting no it's really interesting so i think it's time for our non-human listener of the week so um today we'll shout out to my grandma and grandpa's dog tessie Tessie is almost 20. Oh my god. <laughs> Tessie is amazing. Um, she is a Terry Poo and I love her very much. So hello, Tessie. I hope you're listening. You're deaf, but I hope you're listening. Oh, still. hi, Tessie. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we will be back at you next week with another fun episode of Anthropologically Speaking. But until then, stay cool and have fun. <laughs>